And well, welcome this morning. Go ahead and stand up and greet someone around you. We're going to get started in just a couple of minutes. As a call to worship this morning, let me read from the 23rd Psalm. This is Psalm 23, a Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning as your people prepared to worship you. And we acknowledge that you are our good shepherd. Lord Jesus, that you lead us. God, you show us the way of righteousness. God, you lead us into peace, into shalom. Because you have made us right with our Heavenly Father, God, now we can live lives of peace. And so we are grateful this morning. Lord God, we gather to praise you. God, may our voices be lifted up to you. God, may we see clearly that your word commands us to sing, and may we sing. Not only in this context, but in every other context, because of the overwhelming joy that has been produced in us because of the truth of the gospel. Because we see very clearly that our Savior, He lives like we celebrated last Sunday. God, may we now, as your people, come to you as those who are in desperate need. God, we are in desperate need of you. God, we recognize and we confess that we are limited creatures. That we are set back because of our sin and separated from you, and yet you made a way. God, and so we praise you. May we keep that in full view this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.
Heavenly Father, we do hope to and wish to and aspire to tell the world of the treasure that we found in Christ Jesus. God, we know that we as people, again, come distracted into maybe the worship space this morning. God, but we know that your arms are open wide, Father, because of the precious blood of Jesus shed on our account. God, and so as we gather together this morning, may that be the focus of our time together. Even as we are preparing our hearts and our minds to go to the Lord's table this morning, to drink the juice and to be reminded of the shed blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Remember the broken body, the bread as we eat it. And remember the righteousness that is granted to us because of perfect obedience that has taken place in Christ Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in every respect who understands, who is tempted, and yet without sin. God, and so our hope is there. Our hope is in the fact that our sins are forgiven because of the shed blood of Jesus. Righteousness is granted to us so that we might stand before our Heavenly Father, perfect, holy, set apart for all of eternity. God, we thank you for the resurrection again that we celebrated last week, and may we now look to forward to the day where we will be resurrected, where we will be raised with Christ to rule and reign with him in all of eternity. God, may we not be fixated on the temporary. God, but may we be focused on the eternal. God, we thank you. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray this morning. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Uh, any kids, kindergarten through third grade, can head to the back. Heather is standing back there, and she'll happily escort them downstairs. This morning, we're going to go to the second portion of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and spend time there. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 will be in verse 17. We'll begin there. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are few Bibles in front of you. Uh, that is a little bit of a different translation than I'll be reading from this morning. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. If you would like to see word for word, there's actually a, a table back there with Bibles there. We're slowly going to begin phasing out the, the NIVs that are in front of you, and we're going to start moving towards the ESVs uh, more regularly. Um, we're going to be updating those Bibles over the course of the next several months. Um, so be aware that that change is coming. If you'd like to talk to me more about that, I'd be open to talking to you all about translation philosophy because I know that that's all important to you. Translation philosophy. We can talk about it. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> it's a dreary day, isn't it? All right, there's joy in here, though, and the lights are bright up here. So let's take our Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. Let me read this for us. This is about the Lord's Supper, Paul giving instructions. Verse 17 begins, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. 
When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he, took, or when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About other things, I will give directions when I come. In our time in 1 Corinthians, we've seen some pretty significant themes develop uh, we've seen these sort of come up out of the, the text and, and really begin to recapitulate themselves over the course of our, our several months here now. So Paul is continuing his instruction to the Corinthians and he's moving now to the Lord's Supper. There's obviously something wrong in the way that they're practicing it and we can see that very clearly in the text. Now the Lord's Supper is something that we do together. We're actually going to do it together this morning. We're going to participate together in the Lord's Supper this morning. We do this regularly at Buffalo City Church. And so the application of this text is simple, and I can give it to you right now. It's take the Lord's Supper. <laughs> We're going to do it together. But in the 2,000-ish years of church history, it's, this has been practiced. It is, in fact, one of the most co- important components and requirements, requirements given to the local church to do, to participate in. And when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, as Paul records in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper the night before he was crucified, he was telling the men who sat around the table with him who would become the leaders of the local church. In Jerusalem, in the first century, he was telling them how to remember him. How do you go about remembering him? The bread and the cup, body and blood broken and shed, However, unfortunately, in in recent years, much of our understanding of this has become heavily individualized. That sounds familiar to us. A lot of the things in the church that were intended to be taken together as a whole, as a body, have become incredibly individualized. The Lord's Supper oftentimes has been reduced to a personal experience, and in sometimes thought of very little about the body when we come together. Bobby Jameson writes this in an article he wrote about the Lord's Supper. 
He says, it seems to me that many Christians think of the Lord's Supper as an intensified private devotion. I go to church, I hear the word, I eat the bread and drink the wine, I'm reminded of Christ's death and the forgiveness of my sins, I go home. Of course, we also associate the Lord's Supper with church, at least in the sense that it's something we do when we go to church. But according to Paul, the Lord's Supper isn't just about me or you, it's about us. It's about us. As so many things are, including congregational worship, the very fact that we get together each week to worship in this space at 10 a.m. on Sunday morning says something, says more about us as a whole than it does about us as an individual. And so in this text this morning, we must see implications for taking the Lord's Supper, not just for our own benefit, but for the benefit of the whole body. And again, these principles that we're going to find here when we discuss the Lord's Supper, when Paul tells the Corinthians about the Lord's Supper, are not new to us. If you've been here and you've been listening and processing through the book of 1 Corinthians with us, you understand some of these things very clearly. But Paul takes them and applies them directly to the Lord's Supper now. And this is something that we get to do together, and so we get to apply it directly this morning. So the challenge that comes to us in this text right away is to think about the Lord's Supper afresh. Don't come to this in the same way that you've come to it. Reevaluate what's gone on in your mind when you've taken the Lord's Supper in the past. Ask yourself the question, have I made this about me or have I made it about the body? This is the driving force behind Paul's admonition to the Corinthians here. So, Two things, just to consider by way of introduction. Do you view the Lord's Supper as a ritual? Because Paul's going to address that. Do you view it as a ritual? Paul's words here are intensely practical. He's speaking not about why so much as what or how. He's giving them the practice. How they're engaging incorrectly and then how to engage correctly. And then he buries right in the middle that history section, the night before Jesus was betrayed. He buries that in the middle to give us the why, to give us the theological undergirding for the, the what they're doing and how it's wrong and what they should be doing. So Paul's words here are intensely practical. Christianity as a whole is a practical, practical religion. Christianity is, is not primarily mystical. And, and I want you to see that here because in this text, in, in 1 Corinthians as a whole, we see practical instruction upon practical instruction upon practical instruction. And, and I know it's true that in our culture, many of us have been part of churches that the mystical elements are elevated above the practical. But spiritual does not mean mystical. Those two things are different. Spiritual does not mean mystical. Spiritual is much more holistic, and yet practical and spiritual in many churches have become mutually exclusive. They become opposite. And this is not true. Our spirituality is tied into the practical. Read the, the letter of First John. Read that letter this week and, and see how practical spirituality is. In 1 John 2.15, John writes this, Do not love the world or the things of this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of God, the Father is not in him. 
Do not love the world or things in the world. The practical command. If anyone loves the world, that's practice. The love of the Father is not in him. That's spiritual. You can't divide or divorce these two things. And that's how Paul approaches the Lord's Supper. You can't divide and divorce the spiritual benefit from the practice, the right practice. So don't buy into an overly mystical approach to the Lord's Supper because our spiritual life as Christians who care about the Bible is intensely practical. So we need to view the Lord's Supper afresh. We must not view it as a ritual. Also, second thing, don't view it as rote. When I say rote, R-O-T-E. The definition of rote is mechanical or habitual repetition. Once a month or so, we participate in this. You're coming here and your mind is elsewhere and you come and it's just, it's just another thing that you're doing. I want to suggest we must be engaged here. It has deep, deep and profound meaning. Just from these, just from these 15, 25-ish, how many verses are here, we're given a deep, deep understanding of what the Lord's Supper is and the great benefit it has for us as a body of Christ. So don't approach the table failing to do the very practical things that Paul outlines for the Corinthians. And that will lead us to our three points, our understanding of this text. Don't come to it as a ritual. Don't come to it just as a rote activity. But when we come together for the Lord's Supper, we must be three things. We must be three things. Unified in the meal, mindful of the history, and discerning of the body. So we'll see these broken down. Your, your Bible probably has them in, in paragraphs. But if we go to verse 17 and start thinking about verse 17 through uh, 22, verse 17 through 22, Paul is coming at the Corinthians because here's another area where they find themselves divided. Remember earlier in the book, we saw over and over and over again the divisions that the Corinthians were experiencing. They were seeing that there was, they were following other people. Paul says, some follow me, or Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, Peter, or even I follow Jesus. But by saying those things, they're making and drawing uh, lines where they shouldn't be drawn. And so here's another thing. Here's another thing where divisions were apparent among the, the Corinthians. Paul revisits these divisions and he acknowledges this is another place. They're divided. And Paul goes so far as to say that when they come together, they're not even eating the Lord's Supper because of the position of their heart in relation to one another. Verse 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. They're actually creating divisions through their portion control. Look at verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you are eating. <laughs> They're not even eating it because they practice it improperly. Now, when the Corinthians in the first century churches as a whole participated in the Lord's Supper, it looked a little bit different than when we do it. We do it in the context of corporate worship. We'll get to that in a second, and that's very specific and intentional. But they'd come together for a meal. It would look a little bit more like what we did last week for breakfast. A little bit more like that than, than like what we're going to participate in. There's not, not necessarily anything right or wrong with that. It's the remembering that's important. But they get together for this meal. 
just like Jesus did in the upper room with his, the night before he was betrayed. And so Paul immediately then goes after their practices and tells them that they aren't eating the Lord's Supper at all. Why does he say that in verse 20? Why does he say, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat? Two things Paul says right here. They eat separately. They're not doing it together. There's immediately divisions just in the way that they're, they're proximate to one another. In verse 21, each one goes ahead with his own meal. It's just a free-for-all. It's just a, a free-for-all. Maybe you have a large family and you, and you sit down for dinner. It's a free-for-all. When I married into Rebecca's family, I had one sibling. Rebecca has five. And I was taken aback by just the free-for-all nature of mealtime. This is the reality. This is, this is what it looks like. This is our bent. Like, hey, I need to get mine. There's only so many of those crescent rolls. There just isn't any togetherness expressed in this eating that Paul is describing. And therefore, because there's no, there's no togetherness expressed in their eating, it leads Paul to the conclusion leads Paul to the conclusion that there's a heavy focus on self. Again, continuing this trend, this idea, this notion. What would love constrain us to do? What would love constrain us to do? Despite the fact that we have the freedom, what would love constrain us to do? And love constrain, should constrain the Corinthians in their practice of the Lord's Supper. Love should constrain them. But they all go on and they eat unequally. One goes hungry, Paul says, another gets drunk. Some people weren't getting to participate because some people showed up and hogged all the bread and wine. And so Paul tells them, you could do that at home. You could do that at home. Go ahead. In the confines of your own home. But not in the church. And the reason this all seems to happen is towards the end of this first paragraph here in your Bible. Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Humiliate those who have nothing. It seems to be a, a social class issue. The rich people eat all their food because they sit in the places of honor. This is the way that a meal plays itself out in the ancient world. The people, who, <laughs> the people who were thought to have the power get to sit nearer to the head of the table. And so they approach the table and the social classes sort of divide themselves along the way and the people at the, towards the head of the table get to eat and the people down the line don't. So the church then fails to love one another. Because there's apparent divisions, because of social class. Those with less get nothing. The Lord's Supper is then designed to be a unifying meal. That's what Paul is saying. For the believers of the local church, but for the Corinthians, it was having the opposite effect because of their bad behavior, and because, especially because of the bad behavior of the social elite. And so... As we look at this, there's a, there's a few applications here for us, three in, in particular, three applications for us, three things. First, I said this a moment ago, we eat the Lord's Supper not by sitting down for a meal, but the context of congregational worship, because it maintains the focus on the unity of the body. 
It maintains the focus on the unity of the body. That's why we do it in the context of congregational worship. We come forward, get a piece of bread and a small cup of juice, and we partake together in five to ten minutes. There's enough for everyone, I hope. No one is allowed the opportunity to be gluttonous or sumptuous. And that should be important in your mind. That should be important in your mind. As you look here, as you prepare your heart for this, this meal, even though you're going to go eat another one, because it's not that much, as you prepare yourself for this table, in your heart and mind, be thinking, this is not an opportunity for me to be gluttonous. This is not an opportunity for me to be sumptuous. If you happen to be the first person to make it up here, you don't eat all the bread. You don't drink all the juice. You wait. You exercise discretion. We're unified in our approach of the table. Our economic class, our social status, our abilities, nothing causes one to precede another in the approaching of the Lord's table. There is one criteria to approach this table, follower of Jesus. If you're an unbeliever, don't approach the table. If you've not actively trusted in Jesus and that his sacrifice was sufficient for you, why would you proclaim his death through eating the Lord's Supper? If you haven't trusted Jesus, don't approach the table because you are not actively proclaiming his death that made you right with God. It would be kind of like putting diesel fuel in your Prius. The only thing that determines if someone is fit to approach the table is if he or she is in Christ. And nothing beyond that gives anyone more or less right than anyone else. Second thing, by way of application under this, this unified in the meal idea, is that we clearly see here that the Lord's Supper is for the local church to practice together. This is instituted for the church. Paul is writing to a church. Jesus institutes this on the night that he was betrayed to the leaders of the church, or those who would become the leaders of the local church, with the exception of Judas. Uh, It has become popular to practice the Lord's Supper in other settings, weddings, small groups, etc. But friends, these are invalid expressions of the Lord's Supper. It is those committed to the local church that are called to participate in the Lord's Supper together because they're actively following Jesus in the venue that's given to them to follow him. When the Lord's Supper is practiced outside of the local church, it highlights divisions. It highlights divisions in the body of Christ and does not promote unity. It draws lines where the Bible does not. It draws lines where the Bible does not. Paul says that practicing the Lord's Supper improperly means that we are despising the church of God by drawing lines and highlighting divisions in the body of Christ. Last thing I'll say here is that the Lord's Supper should reflect our unity as a body and spur us into greater unity. Very similar to that first idea. But favoritism and partiality is the negative understanding of unity. Favoritism or partiality cuts against or works against unity in the body. The Bible, Scripture, 
warns time and time again against partiality, all the way from the, ver- the, from the law all the way to the wisdom literature through the New Testament. The law warns against it. Exodus 23, 2 and 3. You shall not fail, or you shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. No partiality. In wisdom literature, Proverbs 24, 23, partiality and judging is not good. In the New Testament, James 2, 9, but you sh- if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law's transgressors. Jude 16 condemns showing favoritism to gain advantage. We as a church must reject favoritism and partiality. We must celebrate our diversity. We must lovingly engage with those who are in different income bracket. We must lovingly engage with those who are in a different age bracket. We must lovingly engage those in a different racial demographic or in a different cultural demographic. And the Lord's Supper shows us that if we are in Christ, it is Christ that we have in common. External criteria are stripped away, and we are left with one thing. Jesus Christ. And so the Lord's Supper is very clearly telling us to celebrate the one thing that we have in common. The Corinthians are not doing this. The Corinthians are doing exactly the opposite. They are highlighting the social divisions that exist between them. So, we must be unified in the meal. The second thing is that we must be mindful of the history. And this is the why of the Lord's Supper. This is why We participate together, verses 23 through 26. Paul gives the history. And it's more than history, really. It's a theological treatise. We reflected on these verses on Good Friday, if you were able to join us. Paul gives this aside because he wants the Corinthians to see that their behavior is actually at odds with the event that instituted the Lord's Supper. Jesus broke the bread and presented the cup that night when he was betrayed. That highlights self-sacrifice and self-giving love of Jesus. That highlights that. Paul uses the word betrayed very intentionally. The night that he was betrayed, highlighting self-giving love of the Savior. Tom Schreiner says, by way of contrast, the Corinthian social leader consumed with their own interests and own stomachs at meals celebrating the Lord's Supper. So Paul gives this history because he wants the Corinthians to see that the Lord's Supper is about remembering the sacrifice of Jesus, not just getting fed. Again, we're not in, in jeopardy of just getting fed because this is not going to, not going to fill us up. But we must see that we are called to remember, to remember the sacrifice of Jesus when we participate in the Lord's Supper. Now, this is, this is really where we get into the nitty-gritty about why making the Lord's Supper exclusively individualistic becomes a problem. That's why it's so dangerous. The Corinthians made it about them, or at least the social elite made it about them. But for the Corinthians and for us, the risk is not just missing the point of the Lord's Supper, but the whole purpose of the local church. We miss the 
the, the, the point of the Lord's Supper. We are in jeopardy of missing the whole point of the local church as it exists. The, the Lord's Supper for the Corinthians had become about them, and it really has in our culture too. We sit silently, we consider our own heart, we take the elements, we leave it out speaking to anyone or serving any other, anyone else self-sacrificially. Because our culture is heavily consumeristic, that makes sense. What do I get out of it is the first question that we most often ask ourselves when, when engaging almost in any... We're, we're, we're wonderful at cost-benefit analysis. Over and over again, throughout your day, consider how often you determine how you're going to do something based on a cost-benefit analysis. And so we come together as the local church, and we're always running through our mind, what am I getting out of this? What, what, what sort of things are, are happening for me People leave churches all the time because their needs aren't being met. And yet, and yet the reality that I would argue is that needs has really been re- need to be reevaluated and reinterpreted into personal preferences. The worship wasn't the style of like it isn't a need, it's a preference. I wasn't getting fed, plus the emphasis on your own satisfaction and own self-giving love. Now we need to eat to live, so there's an idea, there's a, there's a concept. You, you need to come and you consume. You need to be satisfied. And if you're not getting anything spiritually, leave the, leave the church, by all means. But if, but if your personal preferences aren't being met, that's a different than a need. And, and so oftentimes we fall in the exact same trap that the Corinthians did when they approached the Lord's Supper to, and make it, we make it all about us. We gorge ourselves on personal preference just like the Corinthians gorge themselves on bread and wine. And while we're satisfied for a short time, down the table are sitting people who are starving spiritually. And so that really just leads us right into the last thing we must do as we approach the Lord's table. We must be discerning of the body. Now this is, comes directly from verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Eats and drinks without discerning the body. Back up to verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. I think, I think that verse 27 gets misused a little bit. We just kind of like blanket throw it out there. We just say, uh, in an unworthy manner. Uh, what does that mean, Paul? Oftentimes it gets used like coming to with an unrepentant sin. And I think that's important. Don't get me wrong. That's not what I'm saying. I just think that Paul's focus is a little bit more narrow here. And I think that we first need to be considering exactly what Paul is saying. What does it mean to eat and drink in a manner, or in, in an unworthy manner? And the context lends itself to something very specific, a very specific sin. Not just a, a blanket, general, general sin. In this case, it's not considering others. It's... <laughs> doing exactly what we've tended to do in our Christian culture, is to ignore other people and make the Lord's Supper about us. For the Corinthians, they're mistreating the poor and social outcasts among them. For us, it means to show up to church with just me in mind. Just me. Gorging ourselves on this personal preference, ignoring the concerns and interests of others, showing up late, leaving early to avoid others, rather than investing them by taking aim at the heart. 
leaving conversations at the weather instead of asking others how you can pray for them, allowing external differences to dictate our engagement, avoiding eye contact, hoping that no one will talk to you. If that's you, you're in danger, and and we're approaching the the Lord's Supper. This is what it means to eat and drink in in an unworthy manner. It's not to do what Paul says in verse 29, discern the body. Verse 28, let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Paul says it, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Paul means the body of believers, not the physical body, but he means the body of believers here. If you don't discern the body of believers, we're eating and drinking judgment upon ourselves. So, We have to ask ourselves the question, what does it mean to discern the body? What does it mean to discern the body? There are a lot of different things that that are contained in this idea. But early on, we talked about, in 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 1 Corinthians, we talked about the idea of understanding other people's consciences and not seeking to wound those. When people are in a position where they find themselves up against a, a rock in a hard place, Paul says you're free, and yet... We are all, are, are all bound by something. And so we need to consider other people. But let me give you a handful of things here. What does it look like for us, Buffalo City Church, to discern the body and therefore come and eat and be and avoid eating and drinking at the table in an unworthy manner? First, know what is happening in the life of Buffalo City Church. Know what is happening with others in the Buffalo City Church family. Know how you can be praying for others here. Work to get to know other people at the level of the heart, their struggles, concerns, issues of conscience. And understand that Jesus has united his church through his broken body and shed blood, and therefore you should not allow petty things to divide you. Discerning the body means proactively promoting that which unites us. Are we proactively promoting that which we have in common with one another? One thing, Jesus Christ. And then are we learning how to speak that truth in the lives of others through self-giving love? The concern I have primarily in our culture is that we've treated church like a negotiable part of our life for a really long time. I know many of you very well, and many of you grew up in contexts where church wasn't valued, where spending time together with a body of believers wasn't valued, and pretty much everything else outside of, outside of, uh, outside of just nothing on Sunday morning would prevent you from being here. I think that that's changed. I think that, that, that we've grown in that as a, as a body, and yet we oftentimes just find ourselves absent. This is the reality of this text. It's hard to discern the body of believers when we're not regularly proximate to one another. We talk about the idea of building trust together as people. How do we build trust with one another? The first, most practical thing to build trust with other believers is to be proximate with them. (laughs) It's impossible to build trust if you're not around people. It's impossible to build trust And to have them see that you're actually about the things that you say that you're about. We talk about integrity. Doing the things that we say that we're going to do. We talk about humility. 
understanding and viewing others' interests more highly than our own. But that all is preceded by proximity. The local church is designed to give us opportunities to be proximate with one another on a regular basis. Not just to slip out and be absent, but give us opportunities to discern the body. Give us opportunities to come together and not approach the table in an unworthy manner. This is difficult for us to hear because we all have things that we'd rather be doing in our hearts. There are a whole host of things that we'd rather do than cart the kids out on Sunday morning. It's just, it's hard. It's not easy. And the bar has been set pretty high in Scripture. We've lowered it because we don't know our Bibles. We've lowered it because we'd rather think about other things. And so that's what this is calling us to do, to discern the body. But proximity is important in discerning the body. It means proactively promoting that which unites us, Jesus Christ, and learning how to speak that truth in the lives of others through self-giving love. And so without this posture of a heart, a heart that seeks to discern the body and remind others of Jesus through what you say and do, without this heart posture, you run the risk of eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. I want you to consider that this morning. The elements stand before you. Without the posture of a heart that seeks to discern the body and remind others of Jesus through what you say and do, we run the risk together of eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. Please take that seriously. Please take that seriously. It's a dreary morning. You're close to sleep right now. Take it seriously. Paul is saying that there are physical ramifications for approaching the table in an unworthy manner. Consider not just yourself, but others. If you're not sure how to go about that, and if you remain unconvinced that you need to follow Jesus into self-giving love, it would be better for you to stay seated this morning rather than approaching the table. Every one of us, Every one of us should have an appropriate fear when it coming to the table. Flippant participation in the Lord's table is tantamount to gorging yourself and leaving nothing behind for others. So we're going to go to the Lord's table now. We're going to consider, we're going to consider together that we need to be unified in this meal. We need to be mindful of the history. We need to be discerning of the body. Discerning of the body. And I mentioned this earlier, but this is, this is for followers of Jesus. So this morning, if you're here and you're unsure of what that means, what is the, what is the truth of the gospel? Have you trusted Jesus as the only way to deal with your sin problem? Have you acknowledged that you have a sin problem? If not, don't approach the the table. Self-giving love comes through a mind that has been renewed in the understanding that Jesus sacrificed himself to restore you to right relationship with your creator, despite your constant and active rebellion against him. Your sin has the power to separate you from your creator for eternity. But just a week and a couple days ago, we celebrated Good Friday. We celebrated the fact that Jesus bled and died to end that separation. The call in our lives then is clear. Repent of your sin. Turn from it. And believe in Jesus. That He is the only way to the Father. Given as a free gift of grace. Your performance, your law keeping, your experiences, 
your upbringing. None of these could alter the trajectory, hellbound trajectory you were on. But Jesus could and he can. And so as we approach this table this morning, yes, we should have an appropriate fear, but also we should have a great joy because nothing that you could do, nothing that you could do could put you right with God. And yet we remember that something was done on our our behalf to make us right with God, forgiveness of sins, righteousness of Christ granted to us in order that we might live and spend eternity with our Creator. So, when we come to the table, we remember this. We remember exactly this text. What Paul says in verse 23-26 through 26 when he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way, He also took the cup after, after supper, saying, This is the cup. So this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And again, so this morning, this is for followers of Jesus. Those who have trusted Jesus, who have said, my performance is not good enough. My experiences are not good enough. My upbringing is not good enough to make me right with a holy God. We're going to come, we're going to eat together, we're going to participate. This morning, discern the body. Who is hurting around you? Who needs help? Who needs prayer? Who needs you to serve them? Who may God be calling you to be an answer of prayer for? Oftentimes we come to church and we say, hey, how can I pray for you? But then we put far from our mind that the person's problem that we're encountering might well be within the range of God using human means, using you or me to answer. And so we're going to come, we're going to participate together. When you're prepared, stand up, come approach the table. The worship team will come up and play, play, a, play a song, a hymn. If you're not a follower of Jesus, again, I would, I'd ask you to not approach the table this morning. Again, this is about proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. If you haven't trusted Jesus, you're not proclaiming his death. If you have children in here, I ask parents to exercise discretion for them. If they've made a clear profession of faith, by all means, allow them to join you. If they haven't, take a moment, share the gospel with them, tell them about the elements and what they mean. Let me pray for us, and we'll move to the Lord's table. Lord Jesus, thank you this morning that we can approach the table. God, may we be people who are discerning of the body who are not primarily focused on self and self-interest. God, but may we, be, may we demonstrate to others in our midst this morning that there is self-giving love that is happening or being generated in us because of the renewing of our mind that's taking place. God, may our hearts and our minds be inclined towards you in this time, but also may we be discerning of the body. May we see that this practical expression is preaching the gospel to one another. Oh God, may we see that this practical expression this morning is not designed just for me, but it's designed for us. God, we praise you that when we come together, we don't do so in such a way that's limited, 
but is granted, uh, we are granted freedom. Freedom from sin and freedom to think beyond ourselves. And we thank you, Jesus, for your self-giving love and your self-sacrifice that went before us. May we follow you now into your death as we remember your death and proclaim it until you come. It's in Jesus' name that we pray this morning. Amen.
Lord Jesus, we praise you that it is your wounds that have paid our ransom. It is by your stripes that we are healed. God, what a great what a great benefit it is to gather together as your people to worship you and to participate in the Lord's Supper. What a practical expression of what it means to be followers of Jesus, participating in the bread and the juice, the elements, recognizing the, the call and to self-sacrifice. May we take up our cross this week and follow, follow you, Jesus. May we not be consumed with thoughts of ourselves, but, but may we focus outward, intentionally, thinking about the interests of others, following you into humility, because we've been given the mind of Christ. God, what a great benefit. And may we as your people proclaim openly to a world that is in darkness that Jesus is better than anything that this world has to offer. May we proclaim openly that there is a way to be transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son. God, may we proclaim openly that there is nothing, if you are in Christ, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And what a great benefit it is to know these things. God, may we drill these truths down into our heart deep. God, may we walk away from this place renewed and rejuvenated, proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. His return means that he is alive. God, thank you. Thank you that we will become participants in that resurrection. God, what a blessing. God, we praise you again that when we gather together, God, you are here with us. God, may we now see clearly that our greatest treasure is in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. There is nothing that can snatch us out of the Father's hands because he sits there making intercession on our behalf. God, we praise you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, thank you for worshiping with us this morning. A couple things before you head out. First thing, we meet in community throughout the course of the week. You know the drill. If you'd like to meet with us, go ahead and come talk with me. I can get you plugged in with a, with a, with a community group leader. This upcoming weekend, the next Saturday, May 4th, is our marriage workshop. We're going to meet upstairs in the Blue Room. There's a sign-up back there. If you haven't signed up, if you want some more details, come talk to me. Go online. You can find details there as well. Saturday, May 18th, we're going to have a cleanup day here in the church. If you'd like more information on that, John is here. He can talk to you talk to you about that or, uh, or Rachel as well. And actually, that leads me to the last thing. We're going to have a physical reminder. Um, our church, oftentimes there are babies who are being born, and because we've grown significantly, not everyone's in the loop about that. So if you look to my right, your left, you'll see a red rose on the organ over there. When you see one of those, that means a baby's been born. I'll briefly announce to you who that is. Rachel, who you're not going to talk to this week because, uh, because she just had a baby, had a baby, uh, Otto Nels Uden is his name. He was born on April 23rd. I think that was Tuesday. He's six pounds, eight ounces. Uh, and, uh, and if you have a chance to, to congratulate them when you see them, do that. There will also be a, a take them a meal set up, and that'll go out in the weekly email. If you're not on the weekly email, come talk to me. We'll, we'll get you plugged in there so that you can, you can participate in that as well. Again, thank you so much for worshiping with us this morning. Go in grace this week.